Four years ago, I started volunteering for a popular podcast about software, Software Engineering Radio. For the next two years, I learned about the process of making a quality podcast about engineering, and with its emphasis on preparation, timeless engineering principles, and attention to the listener, Software Engineering Radio continues to be one of the most popular shows about engineering. Software Engineering Daily is my effort to bring the quality of Software Engineering Radio on a daily basis. In today's show, I talk to Robert Blumen, the editor of Software Engineering Radio. Robert is responsible for guiding the show, and without my experience producing shows alongside him, Software Engineering Daily might not even exist. If you listen to Software Engineering Daily, you should definitely check out Software Engineering Radio. I still produce content for SE Radio because the process and the community help me get a lot of internal feedback that I don't get as much because Software Engineering Daily is mostly an enterprise that I run on my own. So I want to thank Robert Blumen and Software Engineering Radio, and I think you will enjoy this episode. It'll give you some insight on why I do things the way I do and what makes a good podcast, which, by the way, can be applied to many other podcast verticals. If you have an idea for a podcast, this episode might be helpful for giving you some ideas for how you might be able to execute that podcast in a consistent high quality fashion. I'm here with Robert Blumen. He's the editor of Software Engineering Radio, which is the podcast that Software Engineering Daily was based on. Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. So Software Engineering Radio is a popular podcast about technical software topics. It's very similar to my show. I think there's about 40,000 listeners per episode. And I want to talk about the core ideas of that show, why it's successful, why people listen to it, perhaps what's different between Software Engineering Radio and Software Engineering Daily. Let's start with a little bit of background. How did you first get involved with Software Engineering Radio? Let me give you some history of the show first and then tell you how I got involved in that. The show was started 11 years ago by some German software engineers, Markus Volter, who's a software engineer and computer science researcher in Germany, started the show. This was back in really the early days of podcasting when there were very few podcasts. This may have been the first software engineering podcast I'm aware of some other tech podcasts that are about that old, but not specifically focused on software engineering. The show, it started as an all-volunteer show um, and a slightly funny story. One of the hosts who's still with the show, he was asked to be one of the founders and he declined because he didn't think this podcasting thing would really turn into anything. Uh, So the show grew out of the efforts of this very small team to where I heard about it from a friend of mine back when I didn't listen to that many podcasts. And I spent about maybe a year listening through the back catalog, which was probably 150 episodes at that point. Somewhere along the line, they asked for volunteers to help them host shows. I thought that sounded like fun, so I wrote them and volunteered, and that was how I became a host on the show. What do you think differentiates Software Engineering Radio from other software podcasts that are out there? Uh, well, yeah, every podcast is a little bit different. We have a one-hour length, which is uh, a bit on the longer side of software podcasts, but not unique. I think it's that we have a very technical focus. 
when you haven't, somebody asked me the other day, why is your show an hour? And I had to think about that. Having done a bunch of shows, you've got a bit of a warm up where you introduce the guest. You have a bit of a cool down period at the end where you ask them for their Twitter handle. Then you've got this big chunk in the middle. What we're trying to do and what I, I tell the hosts is imagine your audience are well-rounded generalist software engineers who have a good overview of a lot of different software engineering topics except the thing that you're going to talk about. So you're communicating to another software engineer who has the skills and the tools to understand a very technical discussion, but they're not already an expert on this topic. So in contrast, uh, I say we don't want to do shows of two experts having an expert level dialogue for that a third expert could understand. So you've got about 20 or 30 minutes where you start out with what is your topic, give some background, why is this thing important, what has changed in the world to make this important. And that still leaves you with about 20 more minutes to really get into a lot of in-depth technical questions. So we focus on this, which is providing in-depth technical content to software engineers that will help them broaden themselves, help them in their job. I'm not sure if we're unique about that, but that is what we're trying to do. What I see as differentiating for software engineering radio is the way that the preparation and the team works together to create something that is different than some of the shows that you hear where it's clear that the hosts don't do as much preparation, which is fine because I feel like perhaps in those shows there is more forced spontaneity perhaps, but it creates a different environment when we do a lot of preparation. A lot of stuff that the the listeners may not see, there's this huge outline process. Why don't you talk a bit about why that preparation is important and how it impacts the format and the outcome of the show? As a host, you do not need to be an expert on the topic. The guest is the expert. Their job is to provide the content to the listeners. The job of the host is to be a facilitator in between the listener and the guest, to put the guest in a position to share their skill and their knowledge with the listener. You have an hour, and to go back to that question, why is this show an hour? I was more trying to explain why is this show at least an hour, but why is this show not two hours or three hours? I have uh, podcasts that I occasionally download where I see 90 minutes, two hours. The reason is people have a limited amount of time. We're very grateful that our listeners give us an hour of their time every week to uh, to listen to something that we've produced. You have to be respectful of people's time and and say, in an hour, I'm going to try to give you an hour's worth of information. That means that the host has to have a good idea of how they're going to use that hour. And that means they, they need to go into the show with a reasonably good idea of what they're going to cover. And um, you can't totally plan out an interview because it's a live thing. It's spontaneous. And if you tried to plan it out, it would sound a bit too rigid. But the host needs to have some knowledge of the domain, the subject matter, and uh, there are questions you would only ask if you know kind of what the answer is going to be. Um, and still, sometimes you ask those questions and it's not the answer you get is not the answer you think. But um, it's about knowing enough to have a 
dialogue with an expert and help that expert distill what they know down into an hour's worth of useful information for the guest. And, and that's why you need to prepare. You need to read a book, watch some videos, read some blog posts, familiarize yourself with the domain so that you can have a conversation with an expert and not come in as a complete novice where you're saying, okay, hmm, databases, oh, is, <laughs> right. As your show, uh, is, <clears throat> is your project uh, a database and so on? And then you would not use your time as efficiently. That's why we prepare. Part of the preparation process is we make this big outline and we share it with the rest of the team. That's the software engineering radio process. And that is essentially a peer review process. Why is the peer review process important for the preparation? We have eight hosts, Jeff. And one of the things I wanted to do as editor when I, when I became the editor is to create a community for the host so we can all uh, learn from each other and get better at what we're doing, each other feedback. With the eight people on the team with pretty diverse backgrounds, if you're preparing a show, often people will have uh, some great ideas for questions that you didn't think of that you can really use in the show. It also gets the new hosts up to speed. They can see how the more experienced hosts are creating outlines. And as an editor, I review every outline and I don't green light this show until I believe the outline is ready. So part of it is for training where I'm helping the new host who might not have a good idea of when an outline is ready. Um, so usually the newer hosts I'm sending back the outlines or iterating with the host on the outline to help them prepare. And this has enabled us to bring people on board who have no background in podcasting and train them to where they're able to produce uh, podcasts that are similar in quality to people with a lot of experience. So it's a, a way of um, socializing and, and training people within the team. It sounds like the same function that code review takes in a software engineering team. It's not unlike that. Yeah, and I found that to be uh, very personally useful as Software Engineering Radio was the first podcast I took part in, and it taught me to do essentially any podcast, which was interesting because after doing Software Engineering Radio, I did a show that was about a variety of topics, and I found that the same methodologies that were applied in Software Engineering Radio were actually applicable to talking about anything. Basically, the idea that you can prepare for any topic like it is a highly technical topic whether it is ostensibly viewed as such or not, that preparation creates uh, a really good repository in your head of questions and topics to talk with your guest about. There are some other podcasts I listen to, non-technical, where I, uh, I believe that I can tell when the hosts are well prepared. I do, I do really like that. And I think that... <clears throat> So there's a ton of podcasts out there, and each one has its own audience, and not every listener is looking for the same thing, but there's definitely an audience out there who do look for this, who look for a really knowledgeable host who can engage with the guest and um, can use the time efficiently. So as a listener, I, I learn a lot. When I'm training hosts, uh, I talk about the host is really an editor in real time of the show. You have your preparation, and then you get uh, responses from the guest. The guest may be saying something that's fascinating, but if you want to get through things in your outline, you have to make the call of, 
this has all been great, but now we need to move on to how, how does this database handle replication because I really want to cover that. So you're using up the time in such a way as to get the guest's knowledge uh, on different subjects into the final cut. And in spite of having prepared and you have a bunch of stuff you want to cover, sometimes a guest says something really interesting and you decide at the moment, I'm going to go with this. If I have to, I'm going to leave some other stuff out that was in my outline because this is better than what I prepared. But you only know that because you've prepared and you know I've got four more topics remaining I want to cover and this new material is better than topic number three. So the preparation, it helps you do this editing process so you end up with the best stuff in the, the final cut. I refer to that as just-in-time podcasting. Um, so should our goal be primarily to entertain? Should it be to educate? Should it be to make the listener feel less alone? Because I've heard all of these different goals referred to as what the primary goal of a podcast should be. I'm not sure we know just what our listeners are getting out of a show because we don't get a lot of feedback from listeners. We look at how many downloads we get. Software Engineering Radio has been growing over time, which I think validates that whatever we're doing is working. So I tried to keep us pretty consistently on the same path that the show was on when I came on as editor only just to make it better at what it already is. Our goal definitely is to educate. We had a blogger who put us on a top 10 list or some kind of top list of podcasts, and he said, I really get a lot out of this show, but it's kind of hard work to listen to it because it's <laughs> it's pretty dry. Um, so we are not uh, aiming to entertain people. I think we are succeeding in that. It's like any technical subject you want to master you do have to apply yourself to it and if you're trying to do three other things and have our show on in the background you are not going to get the most out of the show i've definitely had the experience at conferences where i'm listening to a talk and i uh said oh, i was time to check my email or got a text message and then i look back up and i lost it like there was some piece of information that went by that i didn't pay attention to and uh, hopefully I can rejoin the talk downstream and pick up, but you do have to pay attention to learn this subject matter, whether it's a podcast or a blog post or a book or an article. Um, none of us got to be in this field without paying attention. And I actually think that on the explainer's side, like if you're the presenter presenting to an audience of people, you want to structure your, or if you're somebody who's making a podcast, you want to structure your presentation in a way that people who have gotten distracted can catch back up. You want to find ways in your conversation, in your talk, where you can say, okay, so to summarize what we've said over the last three slides, X, Y, Z, and it can be really useful for an audience who might have gotten distracted, which as a podcaster, I can say is, is sometimes hard work to do because it's hard to think about the times where, okay, maybe people have gotten lost and we need to catch them back up, but it can nonetheless be useful. I don't emphasize that. There's a couple of reasons. One is you've only got an hour. The more time you spend repeating yourself, you're using up the hour. Podcasts, unlike a live talk that you're seated at in a conference, you can either back up a minute or two, or you can listen to the whole thing again. We had one of our hosts who joined said he started listening to the show when he was in college. He had to listen to them two or three times. That's a property of uh, 
not only podcasts, but any kind of non, uh, non-ephemeral form of information, you can go back over it. And some stuff, even if you were paying attention, if it's a complex idea, you might want to hear it again. That said, we do use this and we have different techniques that we use for managing interview and communicating. One of them is for the host to summarize what the guest said, but I never saw that as a way of helping the listener catch up if they weren't paying attention. We found that if you've heard a really complex idea explained by the guest, that often when you hear a different person try to explain the same thing, you get it in a different way, or there was some point that was not quite clear. Sometimes when the host says, yeah, okay, what I think you just said was this, and they guess, no, not really. Right. They realize that the host got it wrong, which is a very good thing because now the guest will explain what you got wrong, and probably some of the listeners might have missed the point as well. So it's a way of, and if maybe a lot of people missed the point, maybe the guest, it's either a really tough point or maybe the guest's explanation is a little bit confusing, so it gives you the chance to clarify uh, and, and, and increase understanding. And that's why we do that. We cover so many different topics in software engineering radio. There are career development topics. We had that show about programmer anarchy, which was sort of about a different social way of running a company. We have shows about distributed databases, about JavaScript, stuff on the front end. As a listener, should you be skipping over the shows that are not of interest to you or should you try to look at software engineering radio as an opportunity to be a jack of all trades and i guess more generally as a software engineer should you be focused on specific things and go really deep or should you be a generalist i don't think it's for me to say what anyone should do and that type of question it can't be separated from the individual's career goals there are The field is so large that it's not possible for anyone to be an expert in everything. But there are jobs out there for full stack engineers, meaning they want you to know front end and back end down to the database. In a larger company, you'll have people who are just front end, just back end. Um, I uh, changed jobs myself about a year and a half ago into DevOps, where you're dealing with every conceivable layer of the stack, but I can't say I'm expert on all of them. So it depends what person's trying to do. What I think a podcast like ours can do is it can give you a broad survey of things, and you may only ever devote an hour out of your life to learning about JavaScript by listening to our show, but it gives you a few ideas that help you have a conversation with somebody else in your team. That said, I think each of our episodes does stand alone, and I subscribe to a bunch of podcasts. I don't listen to every episode of every podcast, so we really have to earn our listeners by giving them material that they think is a better use of their time than another podcast they could listen to. I recently surveyed my listeners and asked them for things that they want to hear about in upcoming shows, and one of the most popular themes was, how do you make a transition from X to Y? How do you make a transition from front end to back end? How do you make a transition from software engineer to DevOps or management to something else? Your recent experience in transitioning from software engineering to DevOps, has that taught you anything about general strategies for transitioning between role types? 
What I've found in my career is there are different hiring philosophies in the industry. Broadly defined, you could say there's hire the skill and hire the person. It's the companies that hire the skill. You're going to have to show them that you already have the skill set to do the job. So if you're trying to make a transition, that can be tough. And uh, as part of it, it's really tough to acquire a useful skill that you can employ in the work environment without employing that skill in the work environment. Now, there are a lot more opportunities to do that. Now you can download anything you want at home and teach yourself. You can go to meetups. You can get involved with open source projects, become a contributor. I haven't used this strategy, but I understand a lot of commercial open source companies, and I'll just throw one out there like MongoDB. I think the company is called TenGen, or maybe they changed their name, but they have hired a bunch of people from their open source community, people who submitted good quality patches. That seems to be one way to get into something. Uh, you're essentially working for free for a while to get the training you need to make yourself employable. This other strategy, the hire the person, there are companies who are a lot more flexible about whether you do or don't have a specific skill. If you have related skills, then they'll consider you. So in a job search, if you're trying to change jobs, that you may try to employ it as a filter up front of, am I dealing with a hire the skill type of employer or am I dealing with a hire the person type of employer? Specifically in DevOps, it's a relatively new field. I talked to one recruiter who told me he had 25 open recs for DevOps and knew one person. DevOps is about six or seven years old. It's the merger of the software application development processes with the domain of network and systems administration. It's relatively rare that people have a really strong career path in both of those areas. There are a lot of people who have a very strong career in one or the other area, and I've been told it's not unusual for DevOps to get hired who are coming from one or the other of those pipelines, and the company's willing to invest in new hires and to help them get up to speed on the other half that they don't know. So DevOps might be a field, if you want to, if you want to change from being a JavaScript developer to a database administrator, there's not a clear connection from that. But coming into DevOps, there's a lot of people out there in the workforce who have one half of the skill set. So they're looking at giving you a training on the other half. So that, I think, is a it's an interesting career path if you want to take what you're doing and uh, generalize it into this other domain. There are a number of technologies that I learned about through Software Engineering Radio, when I started listening to the show in college, things like Hadoop and Kafka and these other distributed technologies that I was not seeing at all in the work that I was doing in terms of internships in college. And at the time, many of these shows were completely indecipherable to me, but I found that over time, it was it became useful that I had heard about them, even in fractional notions. And you know, I found that things sat with me in ways that I didn't realize they were sitting with me. Are there experiences you've had where 
you have listened to enough shows about these topics that you may not have had direct experience with where that knowledge nonetheless compounds in interesting ways and gives you insight into topics that you wouldn't have learned from just interact from uh, from your everyday work definitely topics I wouldn't have thought of that a host wants to do a show on I wouldn't have taken it upon myself to go learn anything about that topic so shows do expose me to new things some of what I'm looking for is I'm trying to get an idea of what systems out there solve which problem I might listen to podcasts it's not going to make me an expert in one hour on Hadoop but I may come away from that with an understanding of Hadoop is a distributed system for processing enormous bulk amounts of data across a compute grid and the main use case is when you have uh, enormous amount of data that won't fit in any kind of memory, so you need to process it on the file system. If I can take that away, then and, and enough little chunks like that, then I can be in a work situation where I see either we're having this problem in my job or there's something that we're doing that seems to be taking an incredible amount of resources and not working very well, and I go, oh, there's this thing out there which I think fits this use case. So it gives me a library of use cases that map into solutions that I can draw from. How does theoretical computer science fit into the conversations that we have? For example, we have done so many shows where the topic of CAP theorem comes up. And CAP theorem is something that I only learned about in one class of my computer science education. And even then, I didn't really have a concrete understanding of what it did. But only after hearing a bunch of shows about on Software Engineering Daily, or so, sorry, Software Engineering Radio, where CAP Theorem was discussed and explained how it applied to Kafka or MongoDB or whatever other topic, only then did it become clear to me. So uh, how, how do you think that, that these theoretical computer science concepts fit into what we do on Software Engineering Radio? The show is aimed mostly at practitioners. It is the nature of the field that we use theory all the time in our work. Things like understanding what a race condition is, synchronization, analysis of algorithmic complexity. Um, but there's a lot of theory that we don't need to know that's being developed in academia. Distributed systems is an area where theoretical considerations are impacting how we work more so than a lot of other areas. I think that is something if you're involved in building distributed systems or you're using them and you want to understand what the um, tools really do. So you can use a computer language without having a great deal of understanding of language design. There's a ton of theoretical issues in how languages are designed that we mostly don't need to know about. Distributed systems is one area where there's been a lot of theoretical developments that do impact on practice, especially if you're building distributed systems, if you're building Zookeeper, you're building Cassandra. Talks I've been at conferences by practitioners that people in that domain tend to read a lot of research papers. So our show focuses mostly on practitioners, but we did interview Eric Brewer, the founder of the CAP Theorem. We do mix a little bit of theory in there, depending on what your job is or what you're interested in, that 
can be relevant. Yeah. Well, even Eric Brewer, I think, works at Google as a practitioner, essentially, now. So it's that seems like proof that uh, these theoretical concerns have real, meaningful, practical applications. I, I think it is. And I'm not in that field myself, although I use some of these distributed systems. From my perspective, it appears to me that most of the interesting work in building distributed systems is now going on in industry. All the distributed databases that people have adopted are coming out of industry. The academic world has supplied some ideas. And if you go back, say, 20 years ago, it was more common you would see distributed systems come out of academia and then serve as a basis for things industry would do. This happened in a lot of areas, object-oriented programming, but I think the interesting work is really now being done in industry with incorporation of academic insights from researchers. The important exception to that that I've seen in recent history is the fact that Spark, Apache Spark, Apache Mesos, and um, uh, Tachyon, uh, form, or uh, Aluxio, formerly known as Tachyon, these three projects are important important open source projects that all came out of the same academic uh, institution. So by and large, I agree with you, but there does still seem to, and I follow this a lot on Software Engineering Daily, ask a lot of people this question, what is it about academia that is not replicable in in uh, industry, or is there anything? And there still seems to be something. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but there still seems to be something to the unique chemistry between academia and industry that is still important. I would guess what industry has is the use cases, the production load at an immense scale that you can't replicate. Many people I've talked to about this have said, in the end, you have to put stuff into production to find out how it works in production because you can't simulate production workloads. You just can't. So no university is going to have their own Twitter or their own Facebook. There's only a few people who have that and their Twitter and Facebook they have a unique use case that they, and that use case is driving the implementation of technologies that then become generally useful to the industry if they open source. A lot of academic research, you have to define what is the research topic, what's the problem you're going to solve. Each of these very large systems has a unique use case in terms of the volumes of data, the consistency requirements the way their data centers work, and the solution that they come up with is based on a real problem. Given that we are talking about an educational institution in terms of academia, we are seeing this rise of alternative means of education, like coding boot camps, for example. I've seen examples of people who have learned to code in a very abbreviated amount of time, and they become they become good developers in a short period of time they can contribute to a company. How do you think the education system for software engineers is changing? It's always been the case that people without computer science degrees could get into the field. We recently did a show on site reliability engineering with a former Google SRE. His background was in some area of chemistry. He told me that he's met a lot of people in DevOps who did not come out of computer science. My college degree was in physics. The guy who hired me in my current job came from a physics background. It's always been an area where people could, a combination of teach themselves, 
learn on the job. A computer science degree, it's a great foundation, but you can only learn so much in three or four years of college. Most of what you use on the job is going to be things you learn in the course of your career. There are now so many more ways for people to learn things on their own. Or if you like classes, there's so many more ways to take classes. There are online classes. If you want to work independently, there are podcasts, blog posts, physical books, ebooks, lots of great free videos online, meetups. There's a ton of opportunities to learn from going to meetups. I think people are taking advantage of all of these things, and it's much easier to learn stuff now than it ever has been. And I forgot to mention you can go and download the source code of something you're interested in and study that. I think we're in a great time for learning. Yeah. We talked about cap theorem earlier, and I think cap theorem is an example of something where so during the outline process or the peer review process, somebody creates an outline, we share it with our peers, and the peers often contribute questions. What I find that you're particularly good at contributing is questions that tie together previous episodes and the current episode that uh, is being prepared for. So Cap Theorem is one example where you'll say, what are, you know, if I'm doing a show on some distributed system tool, you will often add a question that's something like, what are the cap considerations here? And then, or other theoretical, other thematic things that might have tied into previous shows. What are those themes that you see as recurrent and important to emphasize to the listener that this is a recurrent theme that we've covered on previous shows? What are the things that you see as patterns in the shows of Software Engineering Radio? I might not give you a really direct answer to this question because I'm not sure. I have the... I'm the second longest tenured host on the show. I have a pretty good institutional memory because I've listened to nearly the entire back catalog in every single show. We, to some extent, want each show to stand alone, but within our catalog as a whole, we don't want a lot of repetition. So we don't do the same show again. If we do a show on Go language, then maybe three years later we'll do another show, but it will be about something new like building server technologies with Go for load balancing or something more specific, I expect the host will go back and listen to other shows on similar topics. And one thing that is, I don't know if it's unique about our show, but probably unusual is the fraction of traffic we get into our back catalog. During a given month, we'll get uh, about 20,000 downloads for each new show that month. Within uh, about six months, uh, most shows will be up to 40,000, which means people are continuing to download them for five or six months. But a substantial amount of our traffic goes even deeper into the back catalog. People are still listening to shows. We've seen shows get 10,000 listens in the second year and a few thousand in the third year. So I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to your question of what are recurrent themes. I don't think about it that way, but... We definitely look at our whole catalog as a repository of knowledge that people can draw from. That's part of what we try to do in the outline process. We try to ensure we're not producing a show about what happened in the last five minutes that you can forget ten minutes from now. We're trying to create things that capture enduring themes that will last for several years. You manage the show. I know your title is editor, but... The uh, my interactions with you on the show are similar to the interactions I've had with 
managers when I've been a software engineer in the past. So it's been helpful to have you as a source of uh, scrutiny, of uh, managing deadlines if somebody falls behind, making sure the caliber of the hosts stays high. What are some of the processes and management philosophies that you bring to the table for software engineering radio? Yeah, on a philosophy level, uh, I really want to set people up to succeed. That means giving people clear understanding of what the show is about, what they need to do, giving people help, coaching. That's why I have been focusing on collaboration. So that hosts as a whole, we can all learn from each other and be part of a community. Documentation is one of my philosophies. I've created manuals that I give new hosts. And a lot of things we're talking about in this show are things that I've put in manuals. That reduces the amount of time it would take for me to explain everything to people. And also, like we were talking about with static versus live content, it's there in the manual. You can go back and read about it later. I'm trying to provide people with documentation that encapsulates a lot of what we've learned over many years of podcasting. This helps people who have never podcasted before get up to speed pretty quickly and be producing good quality shows. Another philosophy is workflow and automation. We use a workflow tool called Trello to keep track of everything that needs to be done. If I make a change to the workflow, I announce it by email, but I've told people if I announce it, that's just for your information. If it's not in Trello, if I tell you to do something and it's not in Trello, you're not obligated to do it. So I really want the workflows to be self-documenting, complete. And if you follow all the steps in the workflow, then you will, by definition, have done everything. Those are some of the philosophies. I could say more, but that's some of the basic things. Do you bring anything to the table in terms of continuous improvement? Like, do you uh, maybe try to fire the worst performing 20% of our staff every year or anything like that to enforce improvement? We do implement some continuous improvement philosophies. The peer review of the outlines is one. And then, which I haven't talked about yet, we have a peer review of the published shows where we are asking three questions. What did you like about this show? What did not work? And what did you learn from this host that you can incorporate into your podcasting? Some of the things that people did intuitively or on their own, like asking these things like summarizing what the guest just said, something people started doing. And when I uh, observe something like that, I'll put it back into the manual. We have a whole list of techniques like this that hosts can use. Things like how to make a transition if you get into a great discussion about something you want to change gears You can say, this has all been really good, and now I want to talk about this. There's all these little patterns that you can use that make, and the the more successful ones, we document them in the manual. They become part of the training, and then the new hosts don't have to discover all these things on their own. So what becomes a very advanced skill can be broken down into a large number of small teachable components, which I think that is part of why we've been able to take some of our hosts who had no podcasting background and they're producing really great shows very quickly. I've had some turnover of hosts that 
issue has never been quality. The only issue has been do people want to or have enough time to produce five shows in a year? Everybody who joins a show believes they can do that. Some people find they can't or it's more time than they want to put in. And that's really been the only reason. I have not had anyone who joined the show and simply could not learn how to produce a good podcast to the point where I wasn't happy with publishing the content that had their name on it. What are the, when a show fails, what happens? Is it something that went wrong in the preparation process? Is it uh, something that goes wrong in the sound production process? What are the frequent reasons why a show might fail? I've had a small number of shows that failed where we just couldn't publish it. One of them was mine. Um, so that's been a learning process for us trying to either go back and say what was the cause of this or sometimes the best thing to do is to realize that you just can't publish this show and move on. Which is a painful sunk cost. Yes. But Right. So I was talking about techniques that we use that are teachable, reusable. One of them is we record the shows in advance, we edit them. You do have the opportunity both up front to prep your guest for what you want. And during the show, if you're not getting what you want, you can give guest feedback. One issue might be the guest is not pausing frequently enough. The chunks of guest are too long. You don't get the right feel of a back and forth conversation. That is kind of a feel thing, but people who listen to podcasts, they generally aren't looking for a lecture. So they want to hear conversation. And the guest does need to stop to give the host a chance to reset the show. So one thing you can do if the guest is not pausing is interrupt the guest and say, you need to pause more frequently. So after you finish talking about ABC, just stop there and ask you another question. We've had a failure where the guest, I would say in the end, did not want to work within the parameters of the show, which you may not know that until you start recording. Um, I, I haven't seen any shows fail because the preparation was inadequate. We have a lot of quality controls around that, but you can't totally control the guest. The show I did that failed, my first question, the topic was X. And so the first question, what is X? The answer was so vague that at the end, I didn't know really what X was. I tried a couple more times. And I ended up recording the whole show. I, What I learned from that, I should have stopped and gone back and said, I can't use that answer. I need something that's more specific and concrete. And can I give you that question again? And can I get a more concrete answer? And if it failed a second time, I should have turned off the recorder and said, I, I'm sorry, this isn't going to work. I recorded the whole show. I listened to it. And I realized people are expecting to learn about X if... In the first three minutes, they don't know what X is. I think they're going to stop listening. That's, I would say more generally, something I've come to appreciate about working with you is you are generally, maybe you aren't in that circumstance, but you are generally quite good at telling me when, Jeff, what you just said is ambiguous or other some other form of bullshit and... Uh, not to curse, but... Uh, hey, this is a podcast. <laughs> right. We're not FCC regulated. <laughs> That's right. Okay, explicit tag on iTunes. Um, no, but it's it's something I appreciate. Um, and, uh, you know, it's always nice to have somebody uh, around you who can call you out when 
you're doing something that can be improved and uh, in 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 many cases when I'm talking to you you help me get at ground truth or identify when my thinking that I have arrived at ground truth may be flawed or mistaken so I think it's I think it's a, a talent that you have uh, as a leader and a manager and something I've come to appreciate about working with you thank you Jeff in talking to a person who was interested in becoming a host this person did join the show eventually um she said she was doing another podcast and it wasn't going that well and she was sitting there thinking this guest is talking for too long and not pausing and she was frustrated um and in the end she had a recording it wasn't quite what she wanted and she was reading my manual and i discussed if this is going on interrupt the guest tell them you're not getting what you want Tell them what you do want and re-record the question. And she had this insight. Oh, it's my show. I could have stopped the guest and told them this. And it seems kind of obvious, but uh, I think also we have, depending on what culture you're from, that different cultures have different degrees of... Uh, mm, the idea of interruption. So I'm familiar with this a little bit. It's been studied, and to, to what extent is interrupting considered rude? It, it varies by culture. In some cultures, everybody interrupts all the time, and it's normal. In others, that there is a uh, connotation of rudeness around interruption, which would be true, but you have to take into account the context. A podcast recording is not a normal context. So You've got a limited amount of time. Your guest has a limited amount of time. They don't want to spend two hours to record an hour show. You, the host, you understand what the audience wants, what type of product you're trying to produce. It is not rude to communicate to the guest what you want. As a listener to many podcasts, what are you personally looking for when you choose to listen to a podcast, either for the first time or when a show really catches your ear and you continue listening to it? There's two things. One is, am I going to get some information I don't already know? A lot of podcasts, if there's some topic I'm interested in, like I listen to a lot of health and nutrition podcasts. I'll look at the topic, the speaker. Is this somebody I haven't heard before? I've also noticed, I read one of Malcolm Gladwell's books, I think it was Blink, he talks about social science research or psychology research showing that people's opinion about a lot of things that they form in a really short time, like a minute or 10 seconds, doesn't change with more information. I remember some example about if people are asked to rate a university professor in the first 10 minutes of the first lecture, they'll get about the same rating as they get after an entire semester. I started applying that to watching movies on Netflix where I found if I'm bored in the first 60 seconds of the movie, I'll be bored after watching the movie. So I'm much less likely to give a movie a chance to recover. Other than there's one director, I found his movies start out a bit slow but tend to be pretty good by the end. Uh, and so if I'm listening to a podcast and it doesn't seem very interesting, I'll stop after a few minutes. Uh, and applying that to our show, that's why we really try to come in strong with give you the information right up front. Here's what we're going to talk about. Here's what you're going to learn. One uh, example that we have talked about a number of times is, of course, the Leo Laporte shows, This Week in Tech, Security Now. 
And these are shows that you and I both listen to, despite the fact that they are often two, two and a half hours long. There are long periods where what they're talking about is totally unrelated to tech or security. It might be about nutrition supplements or sleep tactics. What is it that causes us to continue to listen to these shows, despite the fact that they have those bugs, as well as like four-minute ads, five-minute ads, these these anti-patterns that we've discussed? I listen to security now. Uh, God bless Leo Laporte. If any of us could be one-tenth as successful as him at podcasting, that would be a huge accomplishment. He is one of the original tech podcasters, and I think by any measure is the most successful tech podcaster. So we should all uh, look to him at least, get some ideas. Security Now has a ton of great content every week. And Leo has this amazing gift. He's highly entertaining as well as being informative. Not all of us can emulate that. So that's why on our show, we try to stick to being informative. And if we can do that, I feel like we've accomplished our mission. Um, I do listen to security now a little bit selectively where I skip over the portions about which science fiction shows they watched in the last week and which novels they're reading. You bring up an interesting point, Jeff, which is on the web. We've almost got to the point of eyeball tracking where uh, the website host can tell which parts of an article you read, which ones you didn't. They know which image is loaded, which only could have loaded if they're below the fold, if you scroll down, if it's a multi-page article, they know if you clicked all the way through to the end. They have an incredible detailed knowledge of user behavior. Podcasts are mostly downloaded. People listen to them disconnected. Truly, we don't know how listener... <clears throat> Truly, we don't have a good idea of listener behavior around podcast consumption. I went to some talks at a conference from Netflix, and they do have that kind of data about movie consumption. They know if you watch to the end. They know if you stopped halfway through. They know if you stopped and came back to it. They have some kind of uh, video recognition software that can tell where in a movie the end titles start to roll. If you watched all the way to the end titles starting to roll, they consider that you watched the movie because... Honestly, who watches all the end titles to the end unless you walked away from your computer and let them run? I don't think most people are ever going to listen to podcasts connected to the server. Some people do. Most don't because one of the great things about podcasts is you can download them onto a device. You can be on an airplane, disconnect it, and listen to it. So end-user behavior will probably always be a bit of a mystery to uh, content producers. I have some confidence that if we look at the number of downloads that is telling us people like the show and they want to listen to part of it, we see in our downloads, we see a big spike the day it goes up onto RSS, about 7,000, about 6,000, or maybe 10,000 the first day, six to 7,000 the next day, and it tails off. So, so we think, although we don't know, but a lot of these downloads, people have shows they like set up to auto-download onto their device. When it comes up in RSS, it auto-downloads. They might look at the title and say, eh, JavaScript. I don't care about that. Right. We don't know if they listen to it, right. but the people who are coming to our site downloading a year-old piece of content, I think they're going to listen to it. I can't prove it, but they had to go to some trouble. Certainly. 
and they weren't getting it from RSS. They had to click save and take some action to get it. Now, we have started to do ads recently on Software Engineering Radio. We have some different advertisers. What are your thoughts on advertising, podcast advertising? Uh, are there ever circumstances where there's like a conflict of interest? Or like, I've been doing ads for a while. I have my own thoughts on advertising, but I'd love to hear yours. Yeah, I remember when in the early days of podcasts, they were ad-free, and then I started hearing ads. It is costly to produce a podcast. There's your time, there are monetary costs, hosting costs. Advertising is a proven model in the media. Nearly every form of media, every form of media uses advertising as one of its models. The other model is, do you want to sign people up to pay for content, or do you want to produce it as a volunteer? There will always be people producing free content, but if you want somebody to really produce a quality show on a regular basis, they may not be able to do that for free. So uh, really it's a choice of do you want to have ads or do you want to pay up front or do you want some kind of uh, uh, philanthropic model like Patreon where people can voluntarily donate and hopefully the show gets enough revenue that way. I don't think there's one single right model there have been a couple of podcasts I've subscribed to but uh, that I've paid paid money to listen to them, but I don't think those that model has been very successful because you don't see it. Advertising, I think it's here to stay. It's, it's a good model. Software Engineering Radio is published by the IEEE Computer Society, which is a large nonprofit operation, but they operate like a business in that they produce a number of products which are sold for a price, they do conferences, which cost money to attend. So they use the business model for their content. It costs them money to produce software engineering radio. They have employees who are paid a salary who spend their time making the show happen. And if the show is able to recover some of its costs or even to earn a little bit more than it costs to produce it, that is only going to help the show survive and make it economically viable for the computer society to continue to produce it. Um, now, you asked about conflicts of interest. So, yeah, uh, you don't want the show to turn into um, here is a software engineering rep episode about XYZ database brought to you by the XYZ database. Um, we haven't really had to face that issue because there hasn't been a demand by companies that might want to advertise on the show to also be on the show. Listen to some of your shows and you have some advertisers on who are a great fit for your audience, but aren't necessarily a great fit as guests. So it is a good match. So there isn't really a conflict of interest in, in every case. Yeah, well, I I have done shows that are essentially sponsored content, and I have been clear with the listeners about that. Like, I did a show with Heroku, and I said, look, Heroku is a sponsor of the show. Uh, they made an advertising deal with me knowing that I was going to do a show with them. So in some sense, there is a con there's a conflict of interest in that show, but I'm stating it up front. And I find, my opinion is that with software, a lot of software products, it's... Like, if I'm doing a show on Heroku, Heroku is a very differentiated product. There are a lot of products in software that are so differentiated that, you know, by, you're not going to be presenting the listener with some information where you're like, 
uh, look, you should use uh, Tide detergent over the generic detergent and pay a premium for Tide, even though you're just paying for the brand. It's more like you are paying for this set of trade-offs. It seems rare to me in software that a company is hawking a product that is totally undifferentiated except for the brand name. And so even those shows that are like sponsored content that are, by the way, in service of the other four shows that are going to air that week that are not sponsored, um, those shows, they tend to be productive. Like the the Heroku episode that was essentially sponsored content, that was an extremely popular show. So I find I, I find it interesting that like that is, you know, another angle to make a buck as a podcaster that I don't think is necessarily in direct conflict with the listeners. You're talking about the decision you made That's for true. your show. That's and true. so... Uh, I'm going to credit you that you made a decision that was right for your circumstances. I think it is important if you're distributing sponsored content that you make it clear. Yes. Uh, I think it would look bad if it came out later that there was sponsored content and it hadn't been disclosed. In overall blogging in the internet, there is a pretty strong culture of people disclosing like, hey, I'm writing about Washington Post, and I used to work there as an editor, just so you know, and that's all fair. The Computer Society, it is a nonprofit, although there are economic considerations. The hosts are volunteer, and our mission is to provide educational content. We need to be unbiased, and I think the considerations around conflict of interest with advertisers are a bit different for us than for you. Your show's a business. Definitely. Okay, so I just have a few more questions. Uh, first question, um, first of the last two. In doing software engineering radio, you have taken on a leadership role and a management role. What are the lessons from that leadership that have been the most salient for you? In my career, I've been individual contributor. I've never been a paid manager for my job. This is the first thing that I've tried to manage. One of the tough things for me was, should I be more lenient or more strict with people about, uh, there are many aspects of what I ask people to do in the show. In some respects, I give the hosts a lot of freedom, like the freedom to choose topics. I work with the hosts on their outline, but I'm trying to help the host develop the best outline for the host's show. So I make suggestions, but I wouldn't say ever you must ask about this or you must not ask about this. It's more trying to help the host do the show that in the end the host wants to do. So there are areas that give people a lot of flexibility. There are other things that I'm pretty firm about. And that was a tougher thing for me is being able to draw the lines and say, this is one of the things where you're doing it my way, and that's part of the deal. I've gotten more strict about this, and I've communicated that to people up front much better when they come on the show. Here are the non-negotiable things that you need to deal with, and people have been okay with that. I haven't gotten anything like, oh, wow, this is just so restrictive and so many rules that doesn't looks like you took all the fun out of it. Um, Another thing is uh, sometimes I have to make tough calls about issues that have come up that I kind of wish they, I didn't have to, but if the issue comes up that it, in the end is my job to deal with it, 
dealing with it is better than not dealing with it. And what I found, I believe, is that people appreciate when you have somebody in charge or managing who will make the decisions, even if they don't agree with everything that you do, that you're better off than having somebody who avoids decisions or tries to be uh, please everyone. What parting advice would you have for software engineers that are listening to this show, whether that advice comes from your personal experience, your experience podcasting, or your experience as an engineer? The, I've been in the field for about 25 years. The field, it's constantly revolutionizing itself. What you need to know is constantly changing. If you want to stay in the field, you have to be upgrading yourself all the time. I was talking with you, Jeff, just this morning about a conference I went to. I've been to QCon for multiple times. When I started going, it was mostly focused on software engineering, languages, architecture. I realized that the current one, about 40% of the tracks were DevOps. I asked one of the conference organizers about this because there are entirely DevOps-focused conferences. And there are, I, I had thought of QCon's attendee base being more the software side than the DevOps side. He said this really parallels the shift in the industry and that DevOps will go in a couple of years from being its own thing to something like Agile, where it's part of how everyone works. Um, so, and this is why I do this show, is helps me keep myself upgraded. And I believe that we're contributing to the community for other people to keep themselves upgraded as well. Okay. Well, I think that's a great place to close off, Robert. Thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for being a continual source of mentorship and inspiration for my own show and for helping uh, provide me with a template for building a business. You're welcome, Jeff. Wow.